Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord, God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm the pastor here. We, this summer, we're going through a series uh, through the Psalms believing that the Psalms can teach us so much about what does it mean to have a shared life with God. And uh, this morning, we're going to do something a little out of the ordinary. I'm going to interview a friend of mine. Over 10 years ago, I was on staff at a church, and we had Sunday school classes uh, in this church. And there was one class that invited a Jewish scholar to come and teach a series. It was a series on Genesis. And some of us in their staff, we were talking about, so who... Who is this? How were they invited? What are they teaching? And with, like, curiosity, and if I was to be honest, a little suspicion, we decided someone needs to sit in on this class. And I raised my hand, and I sat in this class. I came into the back room, and I, I sat there, and I listened to this man named Sandy Cress teach about a story of uh, Cain and Abel. I'm not sure about you guys, but I rarely remember what I heard in a sermon past lunch on that day, and I remember to this day his teaching on Cain and Abel. On that, in, in that day, very quickly, I realized two different things. One is Sandy and our Jewish uh, brothers and sisters have much to teach us about our shared word. And the second thing I realized, I had this deep suspicion that I just met a friend, and I knew that moment that Sandy and I would be buds. And so here we are over 10 years later, and Sandy uh, has continued to teach me not only about Torah and about how to read Scripture faithfully, but also he's taught me about friendship and about the beauty of sharing God's Word with one another. And so would you guys do me the favor of welcoming Sandy up here, please? Hi, friend. Is this a good setup for you? This is, this is you right here. Yeah, if you don't mind. Awesome. Well, Sandy, the last time we did something together, Sandy and I, we wrote a series called uh, Monuments, where we looked in the Old Testament at the different monuments that God instructed God's people to utilize uh, to remember God's story. And I was curious of how long ago that was, and was anyone here remember? Do y'all remember that series at all? Okay, so some of you guys were here. 
Can you all think of how, how long ago that was? Four years? Sandy guessed three, and then what did you say? If it's three, might as well be. It, it is five. It's five. And so I went back and looked at a picture of us doing this series. Let's take a look at it. Yeah, that was definitely five years ago. Guys, COVID has not aged me well. I look like I just went to prom. Yeah, and here we are. Sandy, here we are, just a couple years later. It's kind of, it gets a little fuzzy, doesn't it? What have you been up to? It's only been five years. Not much has happened. You know, just continuing to do this, uh, to study uh, and to write and to be with other people who love God and following God and happily back with you. Yeah. I mean, we had, because of COVID and some other things, we lost touch a little bit. Don't let that happen with good friends, you know. That's good. Well, we are studying the Psalms this summer uh, with one another. I'm curious uh, for like the modern Jewish community, what do the Psalms mean? Uh, Or maybe even for you personally, what what have they meant to you? Well, I think it's a book that uh, means much the same as it does to you, to Christians. Um, It's a, a book that's been around a long time. It's a book that is near and dear to people who are in pain, people who on the other hand, want to feel or feel joy, want to celebrate. It's a part of worship. uh, And yet it's something that can be pulled out uh, at a moment of personal need. Uh, And so I think it's really pretty much the same for Jews and Christians. Yeah. So I I reached out to Sandy and I said, Sandy, let's do this together. It's been a while. And I said, you can have any choice of any psalm. And he said, how about Psalm 84? which was the psalm we studied last week. (laughs) And then he said, well, if we can't do that, how about Psalm 85? Yeah. So to get get the most out of Scripture, it's helpful to know the context. Can you share the context of this particular psalm and maybe why you chose it? Well, one thing that's kind of interesting about Psalms 84 and 85 is that you'll note in the, uh, the note, the, the verse, the first verse, is that it has to do with it has to do with the descendants of Korach. Do you remember who Korach was in the Bible? Korach was a very bad guy, uh, a person who was a leader in the community, uh, was uh, the son was one of the sons of of Levi, a priest, and yet he wanted power, and we get a lot of lessons of demagoguery from him actually. Very bad guy. Uh, he caused a lot of trouble to the community. God zapped him. He's one of those characters that we, where we read that story. Isn't it interesting that these two Psalms and two or three others were written by the descendants of Korah? I thought that was fascinating that there would be descendants who would remember an ancestor who did not do good things and feel a need themselves to be redeemed. And so they, they wrote musical, lyrical poems about redemption, remembering back when uh, bad was done and thinking, what can we do to redeem ourselves or to work with God to redeem ourselves? And I just think that's hugely important because isn't that true with us, Mark? I've done bad things. I've sinned. I'm sure many of you have too. And the issue is, what do we do to come back to God? And this is a psalm of that sort. 
and that it was written by descendants of someone who had done bad, that's meaningful to me. Yeah, it's almost like a marker, uh, whether they want to or not, that is, that is the framework of how their family lineage is understood. They were still the descendants of this person. Exactly. But it, it shows this beautiful thing. So Psalm uh, 85, there's just to kind of give a big picture of what the psalm is doing, is there's three different movements within this psalm. Verses one through three has this, uh, this feeling of worshipful adoration. If you look at the psalm, it talks about declaring who God has been. Then psalms, uh, then verses four through seven, it turns to the sense of lament and longing, almost this sense of confession of, uh, of where maybe they have missed the mark and this longing for God to be who God had been. And then the last section, verses 8 through 13, it concludes with this anticipation of salvation. A, d- a different way to frame these three, three different movements within Psalm is that there's first is the part of faithful past facing. So the psalm begins by looking at who God had been, and then the middle part is this urgent plea for God to be in the present, and then the last section is this hopeful imagery of what could be, and it's a hopeful could be, and it all, it all encompasses what, Sandy, what you just shared um, I, in the reading that I did, the study, Sandy even gave me a book for my birthday a couple years ago around the Psalms. And in that book, it talked about this theme has, uh, this Psalm has the theme of turning back. That phrase in Hebrew is actually found five different times in the Psalm, is to turn back, to have God restore, to return the people back, even God turning back from his anger and the people turning back from their folly. This psalm has this theme of turning and returning uh, many times. Uh, we even see this in the very beginning of the psalm. Psalm uh, begins by saying this, you, Lord, showed your favor to your land. You restored or turned back the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and recovered their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned back from your fierce anger. How do you see that theme of turning back, uh, restoration, reconciliation in this psalm, Sandy? You, you know, one of the things that I think uh, that I want to talk about in answer to your question, Mark, is the importance of translation. Uh, I encourage you to get a book of psalms uh, or use a Bible Hub online, a beautiful Christian website that allows you to see how the words are being translated in the various versions of psalms. And what you find, I found four or five different books of psalms, and this idea of return or restore us or be restored to us, depending upon how the translation goes, it could be us being returned, we need to return to God, or God returning to us, restore to us. And isn't that really what this is all about? When we've strayed, when we've gone the other way, when we've gone the wrong way, this psalm is saying life becomes for us the act of being restored. We turn back to God, God comes to us, and in that meeting of, uh, of return and restoration, that's how we move forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not all that easy. 
No. Because, Mark, we want to talk a little bit about the, the anger that was. <laughs> right, right. So in verses uh, 4, 5, and 6, it says this, Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So, so, so Sandy, there's one thing I, I, I want to make sure to share is this view that oftentimes as Christians we have of uh, a common view of the Old Testament God is a God of anger and wrath. Like we, we have this picture of God from the Old Testament is just this angry, fierce, kind of distant God. But then it's like we have Jesus, and he kind of like, like tells God, hey, cool, it's, they're, they're with me. You can, you can chill out a little bit, you know, like almost like to get into the party. He's like the doorman, like, hey, they're with me. Come on in. And I, you know, it, we have this view of that Jesus came to placate God's anger. And I think that's really important for us if we're to be faithful to the text. How do we, how do we hand, handle God's anger and that disposition that God often has? Well, I want your take on this. So let me say a little bit, uh, let me respond, and then I want your sense of anger and justice. Um, you know, and this is why it's so important, I think, to study the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and as much as possible, study with each other, Jews and Christians, reading Jewish sages and commentators and Christian. Because it's important to understand that the anger that is being talked about here is the anger that you can read about in other books in the Bible, in Jeremiah or Ezekiel. In those two books of the prophets, those two prophets are talking about the anger that God felt toward the people when they were unloving, when they were unmerciful, when they went to the temple, but they were hypocritical. They thought that just by going and praying and worshiping, they would be okay with God, even though they would go out from the temple and cheat on each other. And you know, the anger that God's expressed to have felt in those books, and that's the anger that's being discussed right here, because these are people who are coming back from the exile. So it is this anger that's in the psalmist's mind. But does that anger remind you of anything? Isn't that Jesus' anger? Yeah, I've heard, I've, I've heard anger? you say, like, I love the passages where Jesus gets angry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, at hypocrisy, right? At uh, people who are all about the ritual, but not the love. Those who are, I mean, isn't, Mark, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, it's, it, to get under it, it's like, what, what stirs God's anger? And I think many of us have this vague view of God in the Old Testament just, like you said, zapping people for small things, kind of like what we might have with our, you know, views of our parents, like get angry at us for not loading the dishwasher correctly. And we all know there is a correct way to load the dishwasher, right? And so we have this feeling that, like, God is this irritable, can turn on you in one second for something insignificant, but what we find over and over and over again in, in the Old Testament and with Jesus is it's important to see what stirs God's anger and even what caused the exile. It wasn't just an irritable God looking for something to pour his wrath upon. It was exploitation. It was hypocrisy. The very things that many of us are stirred by 
You could say, this is the image of God in us who knows that it's not okay. Many ways you could say is, is taking the Lord's name in vain. When people who are supposed to be mirroring and patterning their lives after God, we are finding ourselves taking God's name and living in such ways that we are marring the image of God in others and marring the, the name of God in this world. And I think many of us would go, we would hope that God would be angry and not just indifferent. Um, I've had a friend recently say, you can tell, and this kind of pushes some buttons, so, um, but they said, you can tell if a community is a community of privilege when they don't embrace an angry God. When God, when our view of, we push away God, God who has wrath over injustices, we might be in a privileged place where we don't feel injustice. And there are people or communities of people who are longing for God to make things right. And that really is what that anger is doing. Yeah, absolutely. So we find this view of God. And um, I love that, the same thing with Jesus. Yeah. He's not just this overall fuzzy, nice guy, right? No. There's things that stir him as well. The psalm continues by saying, show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him that his glory may dwell in our land. Now, Sandy, for Christian folks, we often will talk about salvation uh, with, uh, with a very kind of particular view of what salvation means, like have you been saved? You know, like many of us have experienced those questions with a particular things like wanting, being asked to raise our hands at the end of a worship service or at a camp, you know, camp experience. Were you saved there or walking an aisle? Have I gotten the ticket to heaven is another way of saying it, right? Am I in yet? Uh, but what is a more robust view of what salvation could mean? Well, you know, I was thinking during your songs, the songs you sang when we came in today, those songs are about salvation, I felt. It's about nearness to God, about a return to God, about being loved by God, near, about being, being close to God, about having God with you, um, that's what you were singing about. And isn't that really it? And the only difference really it, it, between that and the world to come or eternity is that that's just an ongoing, and it's big, an ongoing continuing nearness, hmm. which is really what eternal life with God is all about. But you know, Jesus talked about uh, that nearness now. He felt an urgency about it and that you're ready for it before any sort of notion of uh, an eternity. He felt that it was imminent on earth and that we should be near to God and doing God's will and, being, and doing what God asks us to do, living a godly life. When we do those things, and this psalm is gonna describe what salvation is in its beautiful last verses. Yeah. But those are the ideas I think that salvation I think means in this psalm and I think means to Jews and Christians I don't know what the very quick response I've been saved means but I think at its deepest level it means something like that yeah 
the interesting thing in this passage, so it talks about salvation in a couple different ways, about showing us your unfailing love and grant us salvation in the same way that we wouldn't hope that God's unfailing love is waiting for us on the other side of life, right? right? right. Same thing with salvation here and now. But in verse 9, it says, surely his salvation is near those who fear him. What is that concept? Well, isn't this a notion that we moderns, I I consider myself with you. I, I look around the room and everybody's like 20, 30 50 years ago. No, Sandy, you can hang with us. <laughs> We're going to the Fiji house after this down the street if you want to. Well, I think this was a phrase that probably was more common in my parents' generation and their parents. But is it so alien, really? Uh, I think if, when we think of fear, that's a hard term. But what if I were to say that the same Hebrew word, Yerah, means respect or in awe of? You seemed in awe of God when you were singing and praying at the early part of this service. That's really pretty much the same thing. It's that God means something to you. That's really what it means. That what I do matters to me because I want to please God. I don't want to displease God. I don't want to be alone from God. I don't want to be separate from God. And yes, is it possible, and I would ask you, Mark, to say, I I have fears of being separate from God. Mm. Um, I don't like that feeling. Have we, I don't know, may I ask? Sure. Have you ever felt in your life that you've done something or you've been a part of something that where you felt alien from God, alienated from God? Have you ever felt like you've been distant from God? Mm. Raise your hand, I'll raise mine. Does that cause you some sense of trepidation? I mean, now that you look back on it, did you feel, do you now feel some trepidation for whatever that was? That's what I think they're talking mm-hmm. about. And, um, and I think when you feel that, uh, and I want your answer to this, Mark. I think when you have felt that, it makes me want to not feel it again. Mm-hmm. It makes me want to turn back to God. That's what's happening here. And I just think it's lovely, these descendants of Karak. We don't want there to be a generation again where we feel what our parent, our grandparent felt, mm-hmm. alienated from God. And that is a fear that leads us to live godly lives. Yeah. What do you think? I, I feel like my upbringing in the tradition that I grew up in, we sang about what a friend we have in Jesus. And we had this experience of this deep, personal, intimate connection to Jesus. And that really, in many ways, warmed us to this idea of having a personal relationship with God. But I also think what there is balance in the, in the other hand, which is to have a fear of God is a reverence. It's to put yourself in right position with God. So, of mm-hmm. course, we have a friendship with God, a nearness with God, but also God is the creator God is the one who has deemed what is good and what is not good. Like, it's, it's, this, it's this reverence and respect in the same way that we, many of us might respect a mountain before we're climbing the mountain. Yeah. We're drawn to it, but we also need to acknowledge the power that it has in our size or position in relation to it. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't, we're not drawn to it, but we are just put into our right relationship with to it. Right. I think I think many of us struggle with fear because our relationship with God was based around shame, um, 
regret, and that became the main thrust of our relationship with God, which is how do I dodge that? But here the psalmist is saying, and what we're turning to in this last part, is because of your unfailing love, verse 7, show us your unfailing love, because I know I failed. Right, right. So I need, I need to remember you in the midst of this feeling of being separate from you. It's a feeling, I believe. I believe for us, when we're in Christ, there's no separation now. But I know that this, I know the pangs of being where I know I shouldn't be. Right, right. And, um, and thankfully, we have this last section yeah. of the hope of what could be. So let me read this, and I'd love to hear you kind of riff on this, Sandy. And I had a suspicion, this last section is why you picked this song. You were right. Okay. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from the heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Could you, I know for you, just with your love of language, there, there's, a, there's nuance in the terminology for you on how that begins, love and faithfulness meet together. Will you teach us about that? Yeah, it's translated differently in different places, but, but I think it's important to look at the way these words are translated, uh, typically translated, more often than not, and I think cor more correctly translated. So it's loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness and truth. Uh, this is emet, so, which is... Uh, three out of four times translated as truth. So loving kindness and truth meet together. Let's focus on that for a second. Think about how difficult that is. Loving kindness and truth. Well, truth is not often, sometimes truth is hard to live with, isn't it? Truth isn't always easy. Truth may be we're told something that we don't want to accept. Uh, truth, it's God's truth. What's right, what's not right. Sometimes we don't want to accept it. And so the point is here, the psalmist is saying, we want to look to a place in this moment of salvation where loving kindness can meet truth face to face as if they're going to coexist together. Now, I want you to think as we get into this verse and the next, I want you to think of a story in the New Testament. I want you to think of the story of Jesus and the adulteress. So what happens here? There are people who believe in truth who are going to punish the adulteress because it calls for punishment. Jesus comes along and says, what about the idea that we have loving kindness and truth meeting together? And then we'll get to the next verse of where righteousness and peace kiss. And I want to, I want to, we'll go through that story as we go through these verses. But it is essential in, when salvation comes, when we've returned to God, when God has restored us, we first accept the idea that we accept God's truth, but we accept it and God gives us, gives it to us in the spirit of loving kindness. Think about what that means, how important that is into a restored way of being. And then we'll get to the next verse. I don't know whether you want to say a word or two about that. No, before keep going. We do. Keep going. Okay, so 
that creates the precondition for what? Something even more intimate. And now this idea that righteousness and peace, and this is, uh, this is uh, tzedek, which is righteousness or justice, and peace, which is shalom, which you sang about earlier today. So righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's not easy either, is it? Because righteousness is firm and demanding, and yet without peace, how far does righteousness take us? And without righteousness, how far does peace take us? Think, of, think now back about the story that I brought up. So what does Jesus do? He takes the adulteress aside, saves her in the spirit of loving kindness, and then pulls her aside and says, in love, go and sin no more. Which means, which it seems to me is righteousness, don't sin. It's wrong to sin. It's wrong to commit adultery. But I'm saying this with love toward a peaceful end, toward the idea that we be at peace with each other. Jesus is modeling these verses. And isn't it so that these verses should be the model of the way we are when we've returned to God, when we've been saved, when we're living in a community that has justice and peace, that follows God's rules, God's laws, God's ways, but does so in a way of love and a way of, that leads to peace. Because righteousness without peace is not something that we we're after. I don't think I've ever read in sacred text anywhere where the goal of how we should live, how we live restored with God, is better expressed than in these two verses. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I think many of us are tempted to truncate one of those qualities away from uh, the other. For instance, you know, we might want loving kindness without the call towards faithfulness. Or maybe we grew up in a tradition that focused on truth and did so at the expense of grace that called us forward. Um, It also makes me think about Jesus and... One of the descriptions of Jesus that John wrote in the beginning of John chapter 1 said, Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. These are themes that we're finding in this psalm. Uh, Dwelling, glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came to the Father, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus came to us in the fullness of grace and truth. And it's in that that we experience wholeness. Uh, You even told me a couple days ago, you reminded me, which is great for a pastor to be reminded of this. He said, uh, said, and you remember what Jesus' name means, right? Yeshua. Salvation. Right. So this is the gift of salvation, both grace and truth. You know, I want to uh, ask you, Mark, you know, this is important as we get to the last two yeah. verses, which I, I'd love for you to read. But as we think about the motion of this psalm, there is a lot of motion, us toward God, God toward us, and, and us toward each other. And now all of a sudden we see something coming from the earth up yeah. and from the heavens down. 
Uh, and this idea, I want to say something about truth coming up, and then I want you to talk to us about righteousness coming down. This idea of truth sprouting up from the earth. So what does that mean? This is what happens next after we have this meeting and kissing. And now all of a sudden truth sprouts from the earth. Now, in addition to God being true, we are true. We have integrity. We're not duplicitous as their ancestor was. So we live in truth. That's what we offer up to God. And then God offers something down to us. Yes, righteousness looks down from heaven. I love this idea of it peering down, spilling over into this world. Sandy, you taught me years ago uh, when I asked you, I was looking for some deep theological definition of righteousness, and you looked at me and you said, rightness, <laughs> it's when things are right. And we, what we have here in this psalm is the spilling over from heaven, God's rightness. We find this in Jesus' prayer that he taught us to pray. Among many things we find in uh, our, our, our Lord's prayer, well, we find this, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. That's, a, that's an image of the spilling over of God's rightness from heaven that here in this world, the kingdom has already come. It's not waiting for the other side of life. It's already here among us, dwelling with us. Okay, so we have these last two verses, which for me is like, okay, so how can we receive this? How can we receive this? How can we return to God as God returns to us? Verse 12 and 13, the Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Sandy, what's going on in this, the closing of this psalm? Well, this is the way we go forward, isn't it? We look back, we've got, God's promise. We have some memories of what, was, what we were taught, of our youth, of when things were right, our parents teaching us. We remember times we strayed. We remember those difficulties. And now we have an idea of what restoration is about, of us returning to God and God coming to us. And now we have this idea of how it can be how it is when Jesus, when that adulteress leaves Jesus' midst. Think about her. Think about what she must feel going forward. She's feeling what it is when kindness and truth meet and when peace and righteousness kiss. She's feeling what it is for truth to go upward with her as a person now of integrity and righteousness going out before her so that she can lead a new life. I wanted to know what you think, Mark. The, the only thought I have on the way this ends, and I think it's so, so beautiful, especially in light of Psalm 84 that we read last week. Last week, Fabs taught about Psalm 84, and she talked often about the idea of pilgrimage, about being our hearts set on pilgrimage towards God. And what I think is so essential is to find in this passage that God is also on pilgrimage, that God is move, moving with us, 
that our pilgrimage is not to get right with God and, and like earn and achieve God's favor, but it's honestly to turn back and journey with God again. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. That God is on a journey with us, this enduring journey for us to experience wholeness again. And so this is not just a lonely venture where we're trying to get right with God again. God continues to be with us in many different ways. And this week, God is with us in this psalm, and God is with us in this conversation with you. Sandy, thank you so much for joining me in teaching this, for teaching us about this good psalm. Would you all please I loved thank every you. Moment. Thank you. Thank you. You're a good man, Sandy Chris. Well, as the band comes up here, I just wanted to finish with uh, one last uh, comment for us. It's for us, we are a community that we try to be practice-based, that it's more than just learning well, it's also living well. And so uh, as we look at this psalm, I don't want to just infer what God is calling you to do. I think each of us need to sit with that, uh, with how this psalm can instruct us and form us. But if this psalm's theme is that of returning, I'm just curious for each of us in our own lives what is this invitation for us to return to God once again? Maybe it's a turning from things that have been holding you back, from pain that's been holding you back, from, from the patterns that are not the way in which we bear God's name and live well. Maybe turning back is actually our ability to embrace mercy and forgiveness and loving kindness that God gives us. Maybe the turning back is actually just saying, though it's unmerited, though it's undeserved, I need grace again. And so I just want us to have a little space to do the thing that's not common in our days, which is to have some time with God without anyone leading you and guiding you, believing that God is here with you. So just take this moment and just pray. Just be with God. And even in your own ways, turn to God again. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.